0: Darn Excellent. good evening everybody and it's uh, good to be back here and have class um, uh, just to sort of launch right in I can't think of any housekeeping items so if you have any um, questions about the, the book review assignment or whatever or approval for a, a book that you have in mind um, you know Again, if it's not on the list, feel free to email me. If it is on the list, you don't need to. Um, I suspect, the, the, you know, given my sense of this group so far, um, my guess is probably several of you have already read at least two or three books. Um, you know, We didn't have class last week, so what the hell were you doing? Um, So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that sounds good. Uh, Marcia, is that how you pronounce your name? Is that right? Yes. Thank you. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask you something. Do we have the date for the, um, full review, the deadline? Because I don't have it here on my notes. Yeah, we did set the date and we said it was, um, one sec. we said April 26th. Is that right? I had April 19th written, but the 26th sounds good too. You know what? I, I'm actually not looking. I wrote it down on a piece of paper that's not in front of me. So I was just guesstimating based on our class schedule. So do we say that? If we said the 19th, then it's the 19th. Nineteen. 19? Okay. And what about the midterm? Yeah, we're going to take the midterm on a, uh, uh, we're going to wait and see how the next couple weeks go before we decide. I mean, it's scheduled for, some scarily short period from now um which you know it's just the nature of how this semester is going to be i think uh so whether we adjust that assignment in some way or make a take home or whatever you know is a likelihood but i'm gonna kind of wait and see all right Uh, okay so We're we're still on our our first outline and sort of the examination of the early church. Um, What we're going to begin with today is is sort of just picking up from the the close of the uh, more, almost the close, not quite, but moving beyond uh, the apostolic era and looking at um, and looking at various challenges that the early church faced. Now, one of the things we'll do is kind of proceed on separate but parallel tracks. Uh, The the point I'm trying to drive home is that the early church faced a kind of uh, twin set of challenges. There were political challenges, significantly in the form of persecutions, um, but then there were also religious challenges, if you will, in the in the various other religious um, groups or or uh, movements that were challenges to Christianity. So we're going to kind of trace the, the political, like the persecution, which I'm saying represents sort of a political challenge, um, and then and then backtrack and, and look at some of the religious challenges. So. I think um, you know everybody has a sense, but it's worth you know hitting some of the, the details here around this this age of of persecution that existed and that the church faced um, in, in in the opening in the first few centuries of its existence. Um, you know, one thing to note is that the the historical evidence for this period is is Reason, uh, reasonably strong uh, and 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 varied. It's not just Christian sources, but also you know, Roman historians and others who attest to these events. And I mention that mainly because there was a book that came out uh, now. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, which just sort of was, you know, kind of naysaying and casting doubt on all of this uh, period and saying, you know, the Christians sort of bent it. This persecution and 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 they're trying to make this argument on historical grounds but um you know I, i i just i think it's pretty solid uh in terms of evidence for for you know the events of these first two centuries as it pertained to the persecutions despite what you know and of course you know like as you can imagine probably this book got all sorts of attention when it came out and uh people thought oh you know that's this is so fascinating and and then historians looked at it and said, "This is the fake news." So, the first, um, the first sort of emperor, if you will, to to, to turn to in this uh, in this line of persecutors, if you will, is the Emperor Nero, who was gave um, the dates that he was he was in charge on your on your um, outline. Board and 68. Nero is sort of an infamous figure in in history. Um, he was a big fan of the uh, of the fiddle and liked to have a number of fiddlers come and play um, at his court. And like nobody's even reacting to this. Um, like the joke, yes. Yeah, really like charlie daniels i heard yeah that's right devil went down the appian way um so uh anyway uh, nero was sort of this ruthless figure known for his kind of decadence and and being um again ruthless and there was a great fire in the city of rome massive fire in the year 64 a.d nero um was looking for someone to blame. He found the Christians to be a convenient group, convenient scapegoat, if you will. Um, he said it was, you know, the Christians' fault. They were they were involved in in this, you know, horrible event. And so he deems them a hated class, which is to say, um, if if. They were they, they, if you were suspected of being a Christian, you might be arrested. And if you confess to being a Christian, if you admitted it, um, would very likely be tortured. The um, the thing about the sort of Neronian persecution or the persecution under Nero is that it does seem it seems very it seems likely that uh, um, it wasn't m- much more uh, widespread. Spread beyond the the city of Rome, maybe some surrounding surrounding areas, but it wasn't like the entirety of Roman Empire. Um, it was it was pretty concentrated just on on Rome, and Nero um, again sort of found a convenient group that was. There was some sus- rising suspicion around the early Christians, uh, some uneasiness. Because they seemed to do a number of things in secret. And so, you know, they didn't have like an open an open uh, table, if you will, in terms of their Eucharistic celebration. And so the fact that they would meet, you know, more or less secretly fed into those, the sort of argument of those who wanted to raise suspicion about them. Um, and Nero was quite successful at this. Uh, next we have domitian from it ruled from 68 to 98 the end of the first century um, again the the this 30-year period there's not a lot of evidence for a sort of systematic persecution in any coordinated way but there were there were many episodes of uh, of, of persecution leading to martyrdom and we have a a record of you know a number of martyrs during this this period. Um, something that we start to see in the last few decades of the first century under under Domitian's reign, and this was something of great concern to sort of the elite in Roman Empire is Christianity is beginning to spread sort of up the social ladder into the into the sort of uh, higher echelons of society. So, in the year 91, for example, you know, a consul it was sort of like a governor um, in the Roman Empire, equivalent to a governor we might say today, was executed uh, for being uh, on the suspicion of being a Christian, I should say. It's also thought that Domitian's own sister was exiled because she became a Christian. Um, so, you know, there was this sense that had taken hold that uh, Christianity was sort of more or less okay for the lower classes. Um, at least it wasn't a concern for the government if it was if it was relegated to just like the lower classes because they didn't have any money or power or influence. And so, you know, if some of the, the sort of peasants, if you will, want to become Christian, then you know they weren't too worried. But when it when it became the sort of the aristocracy, the the elites start who started to become Christian, um, then that that became a problem. Um, so, but the other thing that Domitian does is is um, strengthen the the cult of what we might call the cult of the emperor. So I had said um, in a previous class that, you know, one of the features of Roman sort of Roman religion or religion during the time of the Roman empire was the, the, uh, the worship, if you will, of the state, the, the deification of Rome of the empire, but more specifically, sort of the the deification of the emperor at a given time as a God. And so Domitian um, strengthens the, the worship of the emperor, who wants to now be referred to in Latin as Dominus et Deus, just something like, you know, uh, God and Lord, Lord and Master, whatever, um, Dominus et Deus. I, I, I insisted at one point that my wife only referred to me as Dominus et Deus and um, did, not, did not go very well, strangely um, enough. That was, uh, that was a miscalculation on my part. But anyway, that's that's Domitian. Um, next, I have them grouped together. Um, it's a period of about 40 years. Um, Trajan and Hadrian, um, and these are these are sort of important rulers, you know, for Roman history in, in Roman history for various reasons. Um, they weren't particularly hostile. Um, you know, across the entirety of this period toward Christians, they were more with these two rulers, especially at times you see more of a a sort of puzzlement about what to make of them. Um, You know, they send these emissaries out to kind of report on status of how things are going across the empire. And there are some exchanges, you know, exchanges of letters where the, um, I'm calling it an emissary. It was just like, you know, somebody who was like acting on behalf of the emperor would write back and say, you know, I'm in this whatever city and there are these Christians here and and nobody really knows, you know, who, what they believe. They meet in secret. There's some, some suspicion around them, but uh, we don't really find them guilty of breaking any laws, uh, you know, so to speak. And so. The, the point here is really just to say that there's kind of this un, uneven and uncertain development of uh, the relationship between the Christians and the, the government of the Roman Empire, where um, Trajan, Trajan and, and Hadrian are, are sort of um, not making it really a priority to, to focus on the Christians, um, but but to the extent that this was a, a new group that was doing things that people didn't quite understand, they were certainly on the radar, um, one of the problems from this period that we get uh, some record of in these letters was that the, the people started seizing on this, um, on this situation of the kind of uncertain place of Christianity to... to Make kind of false accusations where they would say, you know, so and so is a Christian, as a way to get that person, you know, maybe uh, arrested. And and that's one of the things that the the emperors realized they had to work out, which is that they didn't want they didn't want that to be, you know, a commonplace thing where um, accusations of of belonging to the Christians would be um, used in a sort of um, you know a way as a way to target one's enemies and so eventually they say anyone who who accuses someone of being christian if it's found out that this was a false accusation um you know they will suffer the the punishment that that the christian would have suffered in their place again there's a an uneasiness around their status but also for the most part, there, there wasn't anything that the Christians were doing to, to break the law. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't anything kind of um, systematic in terms of uh, a negative response. Next we have Marcus Aurelius. If you remember um, a couple from a couple of times ago, I talked about Stoicism and Epicureanism, but specifically Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius is the great Stoic emperor um, and he was originally thought to be somewhat sympathetic to the Christians um, you know and somewhat friendly um, but it seems like over the 20 years between 160 and 180 uh, you know certainly persecute the persecution increased. we start to find um, in in the records of martyrdoms groups of christians now being executed 12 in one case 48 in another which suggests a little bit more systematic approach where you know the uh, local authorities might kind of round up uh groups that they suspected and and had some process of adjudicating whether they were guilty and should be punished um collectively uh so that's that's Marcus Aurelius. Finally, by the end of the second century, and and then really from the you know the end of the second century through the third century, is when things get particularly particularly difficult um, in terms of the situation. So, in the year 202, the, uh, the Emperor Septimus Severus issues an edict forbidding. Conversion to Christianity. Um, technically, actually, the the edict um, also applied to uh, prohibition on conversion to Judaism, but the um, the real focus was uh, on conversion to Christianity. I realized I forgot to pick a I'm Just going to do that. It'll be the last 20 minutes of the uh, early church lecture. People will wonder what happened. What controversial things did Fraschelle say in that first 20 minutes that, that he couldn't record it. Um, so this edict is issued in 202 in part because there was a concern of the sort of missionary spread of Christianity. Um, now there were you know, a number of Christian communities in North Africa and in Gaul in you know, the modern day roughly in modern day France. And so, uh, you know, the state starts to take, the empire starts to take notice and, and says, hey, we gotta, maybe we gotta do something about this and make it illegal to, to convert. Um, the, the major, the, the real sort of uh, first widespread um, systematic persecution happens in the middle of the third century under the Emperor Decius, who had as as from you, you can see from your outline, he was only emperor for a couple years, from basically 249 to 251. Uh, and so it was a very short reign, and yet he, he posed the greatest risk to the to the church uh, of any emperor up to that point. Um Decius was sort of the emperor at a time of a number of, as a number of problems had kind of been brewing and, and becoming more and more difficult to reckon with. Um. You know, you may remember some of this if you've studied any, you know, the history of this period or whatever. You know, one of the problems that the Roman Empire has, and frankly, it's a problem that almost every empire has eventually, is that. As they become, you know, expanded and and, and you know, dominate large um, amounts of geographical territory, the the border becomes, you know, the border of the empire becomes too big, um, too difficult to maintain, and so, you know, it starts to to crumble a little bit, and you know, th- we'll see this a little bit more when we talk about the so-called barbarian invasions. And a lot of times it wasn't like it all happened at once, and like everybody like you know got the got the text alert on their phone that it was like time to like breach the borders and you know make their way into the Roman Empire. A lot of times it was just you know incremental um, incursions across rivers that you know were theoretically Roman territory. And so, but because it was so such a huge empire, the the emperor wasn't most of the time wasn't in a position to send the army everywhere that they might be, you know, needed to, to put back these, these incursions. And so in the light of this uh, sort of border situation, uh, there was a growing sense of unease um, in sort of the elite Roman society. Decius wanted to, um, he had the support of the military, of the army, and, and really wanted to um, strengthen his control of that. And um, so he, he utilized the army sort of in an aggressive way on behalf of his on behalf of his goals. And so one of the things that he he thought he looked around and he said, uh, you know, a major reason that that things are kind of going south here, that there's a decline. In in the empire is that the people have sort of lost lost track of you know what they used to believe, what they used to honor and worship. There's been a sort of decline in the, in the so-called old religion. Um, and so you know if you're looking for and this is Decius now, if you're looking for a reason that that the, the old religion has sort of fallen by the wayside, it's it's mainly because you know, all of these Christians are, are out all over the place. Um, you know, with their with their message, and they're they're creating lots of converts and whatever. And people aren't paying attention to the Roman gods the way they used to, the way they're supposed to. Um, and so, what's interesting about the Decian persecution, sorry, Decian is just the uh, sometimes you'll see that in books. Decian persecution. That's just the adjectival form, right, of, of his name. But the, um, the Decian persecution really kind of takes place as, as almost like a religious revival where he's trying to say, you know, the, the problem is, um, uh, you know, the people of the Roman Empire have, have lost their faith, in effect. I mean, he doesn't say this literally, but, like, what he means is is that old, that old devotion to the, the gods and goddesses that, that sort of got Rome to this point of, world domination, you know, that devotion has been lost because of the Christian. And so he wants to have a a sort of empire-wide religious revival, and the way to do this, in his view, was to implement a system of um, sacrifices to the gods that everyone would be required to, you know, participate in. And then, so this is great because now, if you have everybody offering sacrifices to the gods, the the, the emperor himself, of course, being one of them, but also other, you know, gods important to the, city, to the city of Rome, then, you know, maybe they would be less angry and and fortify and strengthen the empire. And so this system is um is is devised. It's kind of handled at a you know a kind of local level. Um, local magistrates, essentially judges, would oversee this in the various towns and cities. Um, the idea was that, you know, on a given day, individuals were supposed to come and offer sacrifice, maybe burning some incense, let's say, in, in honor of um, in honor of the gods. And under the supervision of the local government, then, if you offered your sacrifice as appropriate, you would get a little ticket um, called the libellus. And, and it was, it was just like a little receipt um, that said, you know, that you know, so-and-so on this date, you know, did a great job sacrificing. Uh, he's He or she is good. Thankfully in, in the, in the third century, they didn't have CVS. Because if they did, the Labellus would have been like, you know, this long. It would have just kept going and going. Have, have you ever had that experience? You're in a hurry, and then the thing, the receipt, just keeps printing. Like, like who needs 30 coupons at once? I don't know. Um, anyway, so you got this Labellus and you're supposed to basically hold on to it. It was like your, you know, your ticket that you were that you were okay. And so what happens is. Um, if if you didn't come and didn't offer the sacrifice or you refused the sacrifice when you were there, you didn't get this ticket, and then um, you could be required to demonstrate that you had complied. And if you didn't didn't have the ticket, um, you know you could face essentially you could face um, you know punishment. You might be fined or um, thrown into prison, uh, or, or including you know sort of forced labor as punishment all the way up to death. The reason was that the refusal to sacrifice, and not just like, you know, oh, I slept in the day I was supposed to come and I missed it, you know, but like you, you refuse to, even if given the chance. You just say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. That was seen because the emperor was commanding it, was directing it, and because it had this sort of religious, especially because it had a religious sort of overtone, that was seen as like an act of treason, essentially, that you were not um, loyal to to the empire, but you preferred some something, some other god above it, which made you suspect and, and not not really a Roman citizen. So, um, you know, this this sense that this was this was a treasonous activity to refuse to offer the sacrifice, obviously ensnares a number of Christians who. Um, you know, it cannot, cannot offer sacrifices to other gods. Uh, and so uh, what we have, you know, in the middle of the third century is the first widespread kind of systematic state-controlled persecution of the church. Again, the, the first kind of systematic state controlled um, persecution. In January of 250, the year 250, um, the, the Bishop of Rome, Fabian, Pope Fabian was executed. It's very hard to know, unfortunately. Um, one of the things that's not great about what we know about this time is exactly the size and scope in terms of numbers. Um, it's believed that the DC persecution resulted in the deaths of a, a lot of Christians, um, you know, thousands uh, at, at a minimum. But it's very hard to say, you know, historians don't really have a confident sense of the specific range. Uh, many were killed, many more would have been, you know, punished and imprisoned for a time or had to pay fines. Um, but, you know. the the growth of the church and sort of the health of the church just as as difficult was that uh, many apostatized as well i mean many christians facing the pressure of being told that if they don't sacrifice they're going to be thrown in jail away from their you know their wife and kids or something you know did sort of result in a calculation that you know it might be worth doing this um because I want to go home to them. You know, I I don't want to be put to death or put in prison or whatever. Um, And so the number of professing Christians who did offer the sacrifice also seems to have likely been quite quite high. Um, But one of the things that before too long kind of becomes evident is, you know, for all of his hope that this would, would be a, an effective um, kind of strategy to revive the empire. Theseus had really underestimated the extent to which, um, <laughs> the extent to which it really takes a lot of sort of public officials, government officials, to administer an empire-wide system of sacrificial supervision and, you know, issuing the tickets and whatever. Basically, they didn't have the, the the Roman Empire didn't have the resources to make sure that this was done, you know, consistently, regularly throughout the empire. And and so, um, you know, it doesn't last very long. In part because um, after a year or so, you know, it starts to break. The system itself starts to break down, and and financially, the Roman Empire, you know, the emperor didn't have the means to go out and hire, um, you know, hire 10,000 new. It's like, you know, when we have the, the census, we just had the census last year and like, you got it. it's like this big effort just to get people to, you know, register to go around uh, to sign up to, to work for a period of time to go around and count everyone. Um, you know, it, it just, they didn't have the personnel to really sustain this, um, for institutional persecution. Um, Despite the fact that it only lasted basically a couple years, two years, it did a tremendous amount of damage to the church um, for all the reasons I mentioned. A number of people died, um, you know, were were punished, but also a number lost. Um, Decius himself was killed in in a battle um, with an invading invading army. A few years later, in around 257 there was another sort of outbreak of this persecution Um, but it seemed almost entirely driven to give you a sense of you know what the priorities were it seemed almost entirely driven by financial need Um, in this later outbreak at like 257, 258 uh, almost everyone that was punished by it seems to have been punished by fines and it seemed to have been targeted at the sort of people they thought might have money. It seemed clearly to be like a, a new way to tax people. They were, they were far less interested in you know killing the Christians as they were, getting more money from them so that they could pay for uh, you know, all of the needs they had. Uh, finally, by the year 261, an edict was um, issued by a different emperor that allowed for, generally speaking, the toleration of know free religious practice so this period right in the middle of the the 200s with decius was very rough it was very bad um but within 10 years or so things kind of calmed down um for the time being um i'm gonna i've been going and i'm gonna talk about like in the aftermath of this persecution there's a big question about like how do you handle the the so-called lapsed those who did offer sacrifice um but before i do that since i've been kind of going uh let me just pause here and kind of uh see if does anyone have any questions something i need to clarify any questions or comments on you know nero through um these you can't hear me uh is anyone else having trouble hearing me no, that's, I mean, that's a good sign. I'm sorry that you can't hear me. Um, were, the, uh, uh, were the Jews also getting persecuted at that time, or just the Christians? Yeah, by and large, it was just the Jews. Sorry, just the Christians. The Jews not so much, especially not in a systematic way. I mean, they had some of their own difficulties. And some of the the kind of typical regional you know um issues that they would have with like a local governor or something like that but as far as like a kind of systematic persecution it was uh you know it was much more targeted at the christians it it was not really uh, involved thank you Daniel, can you? Uh, Daniel Castro, can you hear me now? I don't know what's going on. It seems like most, most people can hear me though, so um, let's just keep going and, and check in with me afterwards if if it hasn't come back. Um, we'll figure out how to get this recording to you. So, in the aftermath of the D.C.N period, the Decian persecution, you have this question, as I mentioned on the, on the outline of the laps. What do you do with those who had sort of offered sacrifice, you know, in many cases under duress, maybe not in every case, but, but certainly in many cases, but now that the persecution had died down, you know, things had kind of returned to something like normal they wanted to be reintegrated with the Christian community. They wanted to go back to, you know, the the, the gathering that the community would have and share in Eucharist and, and all of that. The, the major problem, if you will, or challenge at the time was that. Oh, one second. The major problem at the time was that. Um, The real, uh, if you will, the the main way that sins were forgiven within Christianity, especially serious sins were forgiven, was through baptism. Um, You know, that was really the sacrament that cleansed one of serious sins. There was no sort of sacramental penance as we know of it and, and have that sort of Um, more defined ritual in in the early church that's something that comes along and sort of is developed into its you know into the form of you know oral confession um, comes a little bit later the way that you would be forgiven for sins was baptism and so problem here with the lapsed is these are people that were already baptized and now they've committed this um, you know apostasy so what do you do uh, second baptism was ruled out pretty quickly. I mean, there was a sense that, you know, that was not supposed to be, that there was just supposed to be one baptism. And so you see in some of the, you know, major cities of the Roman Empire a sort of uh, debate that escalates into, you know, argument uh, about how the church should uh Deal with deal with these people, and so one place where this was especially um, you know important and where it played out was in in Rome itself. I mentioned in 250 that um, the Pope Bishop Fabian had been had been martyred, and um, they hadn't immediately been able to elect a new bishop. That there was no new pope for a little bit of time. And during that period of, a couple of years or so, um, uh, this guy named Novation kind of stepped in and assumed a leadership role. Now he wasn't the, he wasn't the Pope, he wasn't the Bishop of Rome, but he had kind of taken on a leadership role in, in the church. Um, And when circumstances finally settled down such that they they could have um, another Uh, sort of election to choose the next Bishop of Rome, Um, they did not select Novation, much to his chagrin. Um, Instead, it was uh, Pope Cornelius who was elected Bishop. And Novation was very, you know, unhappy about this. And he immediately set himself up as a kind of rival to, to the Pope. And the issue where they had the strongest disagreement um, was over the question of how to uh, how to deal with those who had lapsed. And Novation, uh, you would say, took the sort of hardline position, kind of no compromises, um, kind of rigorous doctrine, if you will, which is to say that you know one one strike and you're out, basically. That those who had apostatized, had sort of separated themselves from the community. Um, And in Novation's view, because they had done this sort of egregious thing that was, you know, really the denial of of God and of Jesus and his resurrection, um, that it was not possible for them to be reconciled into the community. Um, The Pope, however, was against this and eventually, they have a synod, a local sort of a local meeting, where they condemn Novation's uh, view on the impossibility of reconciling those who had left. And and the outcome was that, and, and we'll see this again after the next major persecution after Diocletian. A sort of system of of making making amends was instituted, where you know you might have to do a certain kind of penance, maybe some you know certain amount of prayers over a period of time, or uh, you know, engaging in you know extended fasting, or, or, or some some form of of penance uh, had to be performed. But the key point here is at a critical you know at a critical early moment. The church, you know, could have, arguably, could have um, moved in a direction that would have been more kind of exclusive and restrictive. That we're a church only for those that don't screw up, um, that don't give in during the, you know, the moment of, of persecution. That don't, that don't offer the pinch of incense to the pagan gods. Could have taken that position, and, and it wasn't just Novation. There were others in other cities saying the exact same thing. Other, other, um, you know, leaders in the Christian community. But as a whole, it was, um, you know, the response was that that the example of Jesus seemed to suggest uh, a different way. As a matter of fact, the way of, you know, mercy and forgiveness, uh, seventy times seven times that we're supposed to forgive, and and so that kind of Uh, early conflict was settled, the early intra-Christian conflict was settled in a sort of more merciful, broadly applicable um, fashion. Okay, so this is, um, you know, an important development, but it's not too long that uh, things move forward before another, you know, fairly serious um, period of trial emerges and it's really at the end of the third century and beginning of the fourth century under the Emperor Diocletian. You can see his dates from two hundred and eighty four to three hundred five. Diocletian was um, you know, in some ways a kind of mastermind, military, a military uh, sort of expert military leader, had tremendous support from the military, was able to consolidate power all the way around himself. You know, he eliminated his rivals when he first became emperor, and then kind of installed his key leaders, you know, a series of allies. So he had a tremendous amount of uh, of authority and control um, as, as emperor um, and he kind of s- started to think along lines um, somewhat similar to what Decius had done but, but you know he started to think more of not so much as in, in the language of revival if you will religious revival but he just believed as the emperor it was sort of his job to monitor and influence I don't want to say quite control because it wasn't maybe always quite that severe but but that basically he should kind of have a say in every aspect of the lives of the citizens of the Roman Empire and that would include religion so it wasn't just like he wanted to be the sort of political leader it was kind of all encompassing what his, his role should be and so um, he cared about sort of the religious situation if you will because he felt like as emperor, it was incumbent upon him to do so and to to exert influence there. And by this time, and it's really a a testament to the missionary efforts uh, of of the early church, by this time, at roughly the end of the third century, um, we think maybe as as high as 20% of the Roman Empire, one out of five, um, had become Christian. And so that's, um, you know, all of a sudden a huge, a huge sort of percentage for essentially a, a religious minority to, to have 20% of the population, and uh, Diocletian gets increasingly uh, concerned and, and uneasy and nervous about this, and finally, um, and finally starts to take a series of actions, really beginning in the year 300. Um, his first instinct was to kind of shore up the allegiance of the army. He thought that was critical. So the first thing in 300 is he required all members of the of the military to offer sacrifice. And if he didn't, um, you know, failure to comply led to could lead to a number of punishments, loss of rank, or um, you know, the expulsion from the military. Before all the way up to punishment by death. Um, a few years later, in 303, some additional edicts he issues one um, ordering the destruction of Christian um, places of worship. The the handing over of you know sacred texts was ordered that you know it's, any any sort of thing that had uh, religious value was was to be was to be given up, handed over to the state so that it could be destroyed and then eventually he moved on to order the arrest uh, of um, all clergy, all Christian clergy and then finally um, he kind of implements in year 304 something very similar to what Decius had done, an empire wide um, you know, mandatory offering of sacrifice by all of be, you know, by by all of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire, and so those who didn't, you know, would once again be liable to achieve, um, various degrees of punishment. In this, in this instance, uh, I think we would say it was systematic. It was, you know, another state-controlled, kind of coordinated uh, persecution of the church. It does seem to have um, have been. Sort of worse in the sense of, you know, more Christians were were punished, ultimately killed, and and it was more kind of more comprehensive persecution in the eastern half of the, the Roman Empire, which was the more densely populated half and more cities and more well-defined um, local governments than, you know, when we think of in you know, the maybe, But um, it was particularly bloody in the east. And again, you know, thousands of, of Christians were executed. Only Diocletian was forced to resign after having lost the support of the military and for other reasons um, around some some political decisions, and it was, you know, he realized he would have been overthrown had he not resigned. Um, did this come to an end in the year 311? The you know. The emperor at the time issues an edict of toleration, which said that Christians can exist again and establish their meeting houses as long as they don't do anything contrary to the public order. So again, 311, uh, so the, the, you know, the Diocletian, the, the peak of the Diocletian persecution was, you know, like 303, 304, 305 by 311, you have to recognize the ability of Christians to exist and to worship, um, and provided they don't do anything to challenge the public order. Um, So, you know, in general, I think what we can say is these first three centuries, you know, give or take, were very difficult time for um, the church in terms of its relationship to the state. You know the sort of church and state thing that I, I think is important although it would be a you know not quite accurate to see it as you know three centuries of nonstop persecution some emperors were, were better than others, less bad than others let's say that um certainly the two sort of most aggressive in terms of uh persecuting christians on a, a widespread widespread basis were theseus in the middle of the third century and diocletian at the end of the third beginning of the fourth um, similar similar problems in the aftermath of the persecution with um among those who had lapsed who had handed over sacred texts and, and, and kind of renounced their faith but again and a process was established whereby they could be um, reintegrated into the community. any questions dr um, why the growth in Christianity was it organic? Was it the spread of the empire? Was it conversion? I mean Is the Christianity is catching on, or is it just a gathering of people in a larger empire? No, yeah, I mean, uh, it was. To me, I don't I don't know if you had something specific in mind when you said organic, but it's like to me it was both organic and driven, you know, in a related way by a certain sort of missionary. Yeah, the conversion yes, that, that they experienced. experience. Yeah. Okay. Look, in the in the first three centuries, there were really no built-in advantages advantages for the Christian. Um, once Constantine converts, we'll get to that. And and you know now, there can be some maybe political pressure, or it can be advantageous politically to become a Christian. Um, and you know by the end of the fourth century, certainly, um, yeah, then you can start to say, oh well. You know, it's it's like it becomes a little bit more complicated to look at kind of exponential growth and 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 think about the factors driving it. Um, and then eventually we get to a point, right, where it's like illegal not to be a Christian. Like you, everybody has to be a Christian, basically. Um, at that point, you know, you say, well, that's you know that that's a totally separate thing. But in these first three centuries, there isn't anything like that. Um, in fact, everything was set up sort of in opposition to to enable this kind of growth. It really was a sort of missionary efforts, um, but but even like the force of, of their example, um, you know, I, I think we have some sense of, you know, the early Christians, for example, being the only ones that want to take care of certain types of people in society or, you know, babies that are unwanted that would have otherwise been left to die from exposure. Um, you know, the Christians come and take care of. Um, and adopting to their homes. And there, there seems to really have been a way in which this uh, way of living became became a, a witness to the people that led to you know, a number of conversions. For the most part, was it hidden from, from obviously the emperors? So they had to hide when they did those Christian um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's uh, so I'm trying to remember. I don't remember the name, like, which historian so had, has studied this, but the, the hiddenness or openness, if you will, often tended to um, be related, I don't know, I guess, like, in, in you know, to the proximity to, like, Rome or, like, a major city where, like, the, the regional government was located. So if you were kind of far farther away from any authority... Then you could be a little bit more open, even like in sort of smaller town settings. You know, the Christians weren't necessarily having to be worried about, you know, being, being arrested or somebody reporting them for being a Christian. In major cities, it was generally speaking, you know, had to be a little bit more um, covert because there was a fear of punishment. Okay, thank you. questions before we move on all right so now we're going to kind of switch gears and um, also rewind chronologically and go back and look at some of the early challenges faced by the church really in the sort of religious on the religious front of these, Judaism, uh, you know, I, I don't need to say too much about it, except I think I mentioned before that, that, um, you know, really there's a period in the, you know, first century plus of, uh, of Christianity, but really even historians have found even longer now, well into like the second and third century, when there was not not nearly the same kind of clear, bright line dividing Christians and Jews and certain, you know, formerly Jewish communities that had ostensibly become Christians still retained so much of their um, Judaism that it wasn't always clear, you know, to outsiders which, which they were. Um, and there was a, you know, there are certain instances, and especially when there are, are kind of um, adverse social implications to being a, a Christian, where you have Jewish leadership, um, you know, disavowing themselves from the Christian communities in their, you know, in their city, let's say, for, um, you know, being a kind of radical <clears throat> sect. This was one of the arguments that we see in the first couple centuries. Um, by, you know, in certain instances by by Jewish leaders that, that um, you know, whatever this group may be, it's a kind of radical group. They claim that they kind of came from the Jews, but now they're different and apart. And, you know, in some cases, the Jews are trying to say, look, you know, the people that are causing trouble are not we we Jews, it's, it's these other Christians who are these kind of radicals. And, and obviously... I shouldn't say obviously I mean you may know that even in the early church but and really lasting a long time you know there there was always this sort of component of you know an element within the Christian community and you know countered by an element in the Jewish community that still um, you know focused largely on the events you know in and around Holy Week and, and the idea, you know, uh, uh, that some Christians would say, you know, the Jews killed the Savior. It was Jews, you know, alone, essentially, that were responsible for killing the Messiah. And that this had cost them their status as um, God's chosen people. Um, that was certainly a big part of the Jewish-Christian dialogue, if you will, um, in, the, in the early church was... was um, you know a number of prominent Christian writers who maintain this uh, position sort of being all responsibility uh, on on the Jews and as it turned out the Jews didn't really like they didn't love that accusation so much hey you guys killed the Messiah you know wasn't exactly a, a warm conversation started. Um and so uh, again it, it's not like they were necessarily competing uh, for you know, followers or something, because the, as we said before, Judaism wasn't an inherently sort of evangelistic or evangelical, I should say, evangelical faith. Um, it's just that in certain instances, the Jews could be kind of a, a problem, if you will, or pose challenges for the growth of Christianity by, by undermining it. Uh, next, we have the, the so called mystery religion. And this is a broad term that really refers to any number of kind of religious currents that were largely, let's say, imported from mostly from the East, you know, both the Middle East and in some cases, you know, it was thought to be traced to the the Far East, to Asia. Um, The, you know, they they often had a number of things in common, including... Kind of secretive rituals, um, a body of beliefs that were not necessarily sort of openly shared. So it wasn't they they weren't uh, um, you know out in the open with their beliefs. You know you have like the the um, one of them was called Magna Mater, great the Great Mother, from Syria. This was a cult that, you know, had kind of secret religion and, and uh, secret religious rituals and, and a number of, of other things. With one of the more p- p- prominent ones, um, you you may remember from from Egypt. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have any reason to remember Isis and Osiris, the sort of Egyptian deities. You know, cults around these Egyptian gods and goddesses made their way in. Um, the cult of Mithra from Persia. Uh, I don't I don't want you to worry too much about. Uh, about these specific names, but the point is just that there were these other uh, you know not well-known not well understood religions that that kind of were swirling around um, and in many cases you know were presented as kind of especially to the elites as a kind of alternative to christianity so instead of you know, you could still keep the, like, secret rituals and, you know, having a body of beliefs that was known only to you, the way the Christians kind of seem to do. But instead of instead of having to, like, believe that some, you know, otherwise poor carpenter was actually God, you could believe, like, in this cool Syrian goddess that, you know, was the great mother or, you know, these sort of ancient Egyptian king that had, had come back in, in the form of a god. And so these mystery religions often... Appealed to the kind of elites in, in the Roman Empire. There was often a period of, also of initiation, followed by a sort of peak moment of, of an initiation rite. So there are ways in which, um, you know, we must say, there are ways in which, you know, there are, there are characteristics that are common across all of these um, religions, including Christianity. And so um, you know, in, in many ways, that that made made things somewhat complicated for the Christians. Also, want to mention, last thing I think we'll talk about before we take a, a, a break here. A um, particularly compelling um, uh, opponent of Christianity in the second century was a guy called Celsus. Sometimes it's pronounced Celsus. Kelsis I think, is more common, C-E-L-S-U-S. Celsus's um, sort of primary work was called True Discourse, and it was, you know, I, I think it's widely agreed. It was sort of one of the most effective critiques of Christianity by a, by a sort of opponent of Christianity in this early period. to give you a sense of how, you know, how influential it was, and also how much it sort of clearly was compelling, you know, if somebody writes a book criticizing, you know, you or your beliefs or whatever, that, that you don't, that, that doesn't persuade anyone, then there is, there isn't really a reason to respond to it, right, it's like, if it's, if it's not persuading anybody, then who cares, you know, you let it just sort of go, um, but the, in the decades after celsus's work, a number—countless—Christian, you know, theologians, authors, priests, whatever—wrote, you know, works intended to refute celsus's work. You know, you've heard of the, you know, the, the um, uh, about their origin. Um, and we'll we'll talk about him at some point here. Uh, you know, it was one of the great sort of. Uh, Early Church um, thinkers, just to give you a sense of of the longevity with which this work criticizing Christianity sort of uh, you know persisted, 70 years later, 70 years in the middle of the 200s, 70 years after Celsus's book was sort of uh, published or released, if you will, Origen is is writing an eight-volume response to the book. Um seventy years later again, it's still consuming sort of the intellectual energy of the the, the, the finest minds in the Christian world to kind of refute what he was doing because it, it, it was persuasive to a number of people in its um, critique of Christianity. So and, and Kelsus does something that it only strikes me as kind of reminds reminds me in some ways of of a certain kind of more modern critique where in, in his book, um, True Discourse, Kelsus tries to set himself up as a kind of detached, um, you know, ob- objective observer who's just, like, evaluating these claims. He didn't say, he wouldn't say scientific. Like, today we would say, you know, oh, I'm just, a sci- I'm just a sort of scientific, look at the just the facts and, you know, come to these conclusions or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't, if he said that, that language, you know, w- wouldn't have been um, you know, something that existed, but he did try to portray himself as kind of this uh, distant observer who was just fairly examining the claims of Christianity, and he does this by looking at both the Christian holy documents, the Christian scriptures, as well as his account of, um, you know, having conversations with with Christians and asking them what they believe, sort of the, the everyday. Um, you know a conversation with the everyday Christian this always reminds me of I, I'm I, I have to admit I don't watch um like any of the late night shows anymore and I think somebody is basically doing this bit maybe it's Jimmy Kimmel but if you remember Jay uh Jay Leno used to do the jaywalking thing where you'd go and say you know who's the vice president and you know like one out of 10 people would know the answer and and it was like you know kind of embarrassing and, and funny and sad all at the same time you know we don't know who was talking to when he was asking them about christians i mean he gives the impression they sort of talk to the average everyday christian to understand what they believe but nevertheless he probably found sort of the juiciest examples of misunderstanding and he claims that you know christianity is sort of um is basically just another form essentially of magic or witchcraft um you know, he, he said, he cast doubt on the Christian account of, you know, the creation of the world, the incarnation he finds to be completely, you know, sort of preposterous. What is, what do you mean that, you know, God has a son? Um, you know, there, there were the sort of religious, there, there was a context for, you know, humans becoming divinized, especially after their, their death. Um, but this, you know, the Christian narrative of the incarnation, um, you know, he cast out on his major take, his major sort of portrayal of Christ was that he's basically a, a charlatan, you know, a snake oil salesman, um, who just sort of, uh, has, has, um, pulled the wool over on everyone and, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, just got everybody fooled. And now there's this group that's, that's kind of growing off of this, this, um, you know, this, this sort of fake set of, of of stories you know he thought Jesus was like a sort of a lowly criminal and that's you know that's why the vast majority of the first centuries of the church were sort of more lower class people like he he just thought um you know this was all really kind of shady and, and um and not uh you know nothing kind of commendable about the the early Christians um who had either were sort of deceived or were, you know, had bought into this kind of quasi rich witchcraft um, around the resurrection. And then finally and importantly um, for what we just were talking about with the uh, persecution, Celsus makes the point that uh, surely was not lost on you know, political leaders moving forward, that to the extent that, you know, Christians sort of you know, follow the beat of their own drummer, or whatever you might say. You know, they—they, they, this could cause them to refuse to obey the laws of the state, and uh, this proved that they were sort of a subversive element within the Roman Empire. And so, uh, Celsus' you know, recommendation, if you will, was that the state should do uh, whatever it could within its power to crush them. Because other, what, criminals or or sort of charlatans would. Know, would undermine the continuation of the Roman Empire so the Empire needed to uh, you know, take action. And again, uh, it was a pretty influential book of um, work and, and he certainly got a lot of people's attention, including a number of Christians who you know, felt like it was the main arg- it was the set, a sort of a condensed uh, series of the primary arguments to which The early church was was trying to respond, you know, creation, the incarnation, understanding the resurrection, um, and then eventually getting to the point of of making the argument for why being a Christian wasn't inherently subversive. Um, So that is Kelsus' true discord. Uh, Any questions? Okay. So it's 8.10. Um, I mean, we've got a couple more. I want to talk about Gnosticism and Montanism and then also start to look at some of the Christian response to this. But this seems like a pretty good place to, to pause for our break. Let's take 15 and come back at 8.25. Great. Thanks, everyone. So, you know, we, we have the mystery religions and, and Judaism and Celsus, but so sort of two, the two, myth, you know, most substantial, in some ways, movements or sort of alternative religious movements in the first few centuries AD um, are Gnosticism and uh, Montanism. Gnosticism is oh, yeah, sorry, one sec. this? Gnosticism is um, it's kind of interesting in that it doesn't it, it's, a, it's a sort of ne- somewhat nebulous kind of broad um, term that, that can mean different somewhat different things in different contexts so the root of that is this Greek word gnosis right which means knowledge um, but one of the things that's sort of a, a feature of Gnosticism as a, a kind of religious sensibility or movement is that it's um Well, the fancy word for it is be that that it's like syncretist. In other words, it takes it takes elements of a lot of different things. Um, it takes elements of a lot of different things and kind of adopts them, you know, to, in bits and pieces. It kind of just add, takes a little bit of this thing, a little bit of that thing, and throws throws it all together. Um, I think this is a comment that a student made. I wrote it, so I use this like the same notes or whatever. And uh, over over the years, and I just kind of modify anything and like in you know in pen if, if there's something that changes or um, you know the battle the battle of the Milvian Bridge like took place on a different year. No, um, but sometimes like comments or things that I, I want to note, I, I write in. And for next to Gnosticism, I'm gonna assume this was not a historian, but but a very perceptive. Comment from a previous student uh, who characterized it as the succotash of religion. And um, that it, like kind of throws in a bunch of different stuff, right? I always appreciate a good food metaphor. Um, so keep that in mind for your uh, exams. Um, you know, Constantine is like the fudge brownie of, uh, I don't know, this is not going oh. to work good. So my point is simply. Um, Gnosticism we're going to look at it sort of specifically as a challenge to Christianity but it really is broader than that there are like it's identifiable kind of like Jewish Gnostic movements Um, also in in different pagan uh, sort of pagan religions there are kind of Gnostic um, challenges almost if you will including in, in parts of like North Africa, there are Gnostic movements. So we tend to talk about Gnosticism as if it's like one thing, Gnosticism, and it's that's a little bit misleading. Um, it's it's really kind of adaptable to the place and time where where you mean it. Now here we are going to mean like sort of the the version that was a kind of challenge to Christianity in the first few centuries. Um, but I do want to make make that point about it being kind of a broader term however for our purposes the the version if you will of Gnosticism that was a great challenge to Christianity um I would say one of the defining features of it um you might say uh that it was deeply dualistic Body of dualism, which is to say sort of two choices, good 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 and bad, good and evil, you know, sort of black and white if you will, conception of the universe. Um, and a number of sort of religious trends or movements or heresies when we get later on will will kind of revert back to a sort of dualist tendency and And so in this in this context, there's a, a division. Like the the two choices are really between matter and spirit, or between the material world, the physical world. You know, the touching this laptop that I'm talking into, or the you know the chair I'm sitting in. Or the, even even my arm, right? Body is is material, versus the sort of the spiritual realm that exists. Uh, Gnosticism held that the material world is bad. Um, it's corrupted. It's more than just bad; it's evil. Whereas the sort of spiritual realm is is the good, is the good side of things. And so, its sort of anthropology was uh, was something that reflected that. Its understanding of you know men and women was was reflective of that. And so. You know, the body is sort of like, the physical body is sort of like this prison that that we're all stuck in and, and waiting to be kind of uh, released or escaped to sort of this spiritual, um, sort of spiritual fulfillment, you know, which is really only attained by our souls, according to the Gnostics. I mean, that's that's the, the part of us that's the, the good part, if you will, is the part that exists um, immaterially um so what this meant for its challenge to christianity was was that it's going to have a pretty hard time accepting and and so therefore it, it, it moves to kind of criticize and undermine the the incarnational aspect of christianity you know if and even i'll take a step back even the the creation account is kind of a problem have a good god that would create you know this entire world of matter of material things of you know uh, you know oceans and 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 mountains and trees and and rocks um you know that's the visible world is like a place of of bondage for the, the gnostics and so in their view there was like a, a demigod, a somewhat lesser god that was kind of the, the creator god, the one responsible for making the world um, The sort of the ultimate if you will um, god like the capital G god uh, was purely sort of spiritual and, and interested only in, in the kind of spiritual realm and the way that you know one could attain union with the the um with god in the spiritual realm was by the attainment of this special knowledge you know like sometimes you know you talk about putting a, a k in knowledge in, in like a capital in, in, as a capital letter like there was this kind of special knowledge that's gnosis um and hence gnosticism that one could possibly have revealed to to him or her that would then enable them to understand um, you know understand some something about reality and sort of the spiritual essence out of it. I should say that um, you know we, it's, it can be confusing too because when we talk about Gnosticism we talk about this special knowledge that, that one one needs um, sort of in order to be saved you might think it's like well, knowledge to us means something kind of like, I don't know, concrete, almost rational. Right. It's like, you know, it's like fourth level quantitative physics or something like that. Like that's the special knowledge is like, you finally know how to do you know, uh, calculus or something. <laughs> or something. Um, and, and then at that point you're saved, which means I'm damned. Um, if, if calculus is a requirement, I'm in trouble. Um, and so, but it really wasn't that kind of like knowing knowledge. It was a kind of mystical um enlightenment almost I, I I almost like sort of yeah mystical enlightenment or something like that is a better word for what gnosis represented it wouldn't be something for example that you could easily express in writing um you know it was a it was something a little bit more ineffable than that it was it was something in a spiritual world so in, in terms of how, you know, how this plays out, um, the Gnostics believe that Christ was a kind of um, messenger almost or revealer of, um, you know, this sort of this special knowledge. And he also revealed, Christ revealed this sort of previously unknown knowledge um, previously unknown, all-good God, that that's who he was really sort of coming to reveal. Not not so much the God of the Old Testament who created the world in, 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 um, in Genesis, because that God was like the demigod, the lesser God, because that God was responsible for creating the material world. Instead, Jesus was here to, um, you know, reveal the, the ultimate God, um, and he was this sort of messenger of the spiritual reality. Now, you know, if I'm saying our bodies, you know, are being material are, are sort of evil, because all matter is evil, then you can imagine. For the Gnostics, like, the incarnation couldn't have been a sort of actual reality. Like, Jesus couldn't have had a real physical existence. Otherwise, that would have made him... You know, just as um, kind of imperfect as the Old Testament Creator God who was responsible for creating the material world. So instead, the Gnostics, you know, it kind of varied depending on you know who you who you look at, um, but they certainly they certainly um, you know had an account of Jesus that that would be very similar to the, the Docetists or um, Docetism. Spelling. Which you may have encountered, like in your Christology studies or something. Which you know, doceo is just a verb that means to seem, with an M, seem or appear. And so the idea was that you know Jesus sort of looked like a guy, but it was just like an, an appearance. It wasn't an he wasn't a, an actual like flesh and blood man. Um, you know, other Gnostic writers portray him as more like a sort of almost like a, a ghost, ghost-like presence, like not with any like sort of spooky undertones, but just like that he was more like this presence that manifested than an actual uh, human being. Um, because the whole, again, the whole incarnation account was would have been sort of unappealing for Gnosticism. You know? uh, having Jesus born to a, a woman um and taking on you know the fullness of humanity just was not that was not what they believed they they wouldn't believe that a messenger of god would sort of do that but what he could do or what he came to do was sort of reveal this um this all good god that was hitherto unknown and and um, when you know, the effect of his revealing this was that now people, you know, moving forward through history, could also attain this this special kind of mystical knowledge, if you will. Um, concretely, what did this mean in terms of how the Gnostics fit into the kind of religious culture of the first couple centuries? Well, you can imagine, you know, based on all we've said so far, they. Um, you know, weren't very interested in, in the Old Testament. Um, you know, they rejected that as being sort of a compelling, um, account of the the ultimate God. Um, they thought, again, it it was, there was something to the God of the Old Testament, but that he was like a lesser, a lesser God, a demi, a demigod. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they don't have a lot of uh, interest, if you will, in, in the Old Testament what they do in in terms of the the sacred texts, they do tend to focus on, um, the writings of Paul, which emphasized to a good amount, sort of the spiritual realm, the importance of the life of the spirit. Um, and, and so they, they liked a lot of what, you know, what he talks about. Um, and then as, as far as, um, you know, as far as the gospels the gospel of john is sort of the most spiritual if you will of them and so you know that was the one that they turned to the most um, to, to sort of um, explain explain jesus um, you know in paul's writings we, we get a lot of um just to go back for a second you know he, he talks a lot about like the battle between the the flesh and the spirit, and you know the the principalities and powers, uh, and you know the, sort of the struggle that Christ is the victor over uh, the the powers and principalities of the world, which is related to sort of the ruler of the ruler of darkness. Um, and so they see all of this kind of uh, language in Paul as as um, promoting their view. How exactly one attained this um, special knowledge was kind of not easily explained, and even even today, like I mean, there's there's not a you know a particular uh, way in which one you know could cert, be certain to um, receive it. It was just sort of like by you know by chance the certain individuals, certain men and women received this sort of mystical enlightenment that enabled them to kind of see things that it's, 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 see the real meaning of what Jesus was coming to um, to reveal. And that was to you know, put them in contact with this true knowledge, which was then salvific. It, it, it was, it, you know, it saved them. Um, and, and so this didn't apply to most people. I mean, it was kind of an exclusive. Uh, those who possessed the fullness of this knowledge was a somewhat exclusive group. Um, they didn't think it was widespread. Um, but also, there were there were sort of different um, different levels almost that you could attain. So, like the highest fulfillment of the knowledge was like the goal. But you could be like a, a kind of contributor to the movement without having received full enlightenment. The person that, uh, you know, the figure that sort of um, most readily associated with Gnosticism in this era is the second second century figure called Marcion, Marcion. He was born in in Asia Minor, like modern day Turkey um, and came to Rome around the year 140 and was part of the Christian congregation in Rome. And so in that sense, he was kind of a convert, you know, away from Christianity and towards um, and towards Gnosticism. The Marcion's argument was that, you know, despite, you know, what we talked about last time with what Paul was trying to emphasize and sort of the mansion of Christianity sort of beyond the Jewish law, nevertheless marcion thought that the christianity it was still essentially under the sort of the bondage of this kind of old testament legalism that was that was what it was you know much too wrapped up in and that the god of the old testament was still far too influential in christian communities and so marcion said no you know we have to cast all of that aside and just focus on you know certain aspects of Paul's writings, especially. You know, for Marcion, um, too many of the Christians, you know, we're talking about 140, 150, you know, middle of the second century, too many of the early Christians were still sort of under the sway of, you know, like an eye for an eye kind of sense of the world. Um, And and so that, that to him was still too representative of, you know, the Old Testament way. Um, So he kind of calls for like a, like, I mean, I'm using this word in in a similar way to like how we'll come to know it, but I'm not suggesting it's really like this, but it's calling for like a reformation almost of the the early Christian community to sort of turn away from certain excesses or misunderstandings of of like what the apostles had taught and, and instead to kind of cast aside Certain errors that were again tied up in, in Marcion's view in a sort of over reliance on the God of the Old Testament. Um, so he, he leads a number of followers, um, you know, not a huge number, it's hard to say exactly, but enough to be kind of substantial into kind of a separate church, almost, if you will. Um, um, he creates a, a breakaway group um he compiles and this is going to be we'll we'll come back to this you know if not if not today soon, you know next time but he compiles a canon you know a, a like a a grouping of sacred of sacred texts in many ways his his format is like his creation of a canon of scripture is a big factor in driving the christian response to kind of define the official christian canon of scripture um and so martian you know again sets aside the old testament and instead um and instead focuses mainly on certain certain aspects of paul or certain passages of the gospel that that um you know did not invoke sort of Christ referring to the Old Testament God as his father or anything like that. None of that stuff would stay in. It's thought it's again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of saying this with not total certainty around exactly the trajectory of sort of uh, Martian movement. Um, but it, it lasted, you know, for at least a few centuries. Um, it was a kind of, you know challenge to sort of, sort of the earliest, um, you know, re- reality of the Christian Church the earliest existence of that as an institution. This was you know, one of the first major challenges on, on religious grounds. and and it's and in some ways it's ironic, right? That, that he he challenges it for being too legalistic, whereas in many ways, Christ himself was challenging. Religious leaders of his day um, for, for being kind of too, too legalistic. And so, um, as late as the fifth century, in sort of far flung parts of the Roman Empire, we see remnants of, of, sort of followers of Marcion. But certainly, it didn't last um, with any real substantial following beyond probably a generation or two past Marcion's death in the middle of the second century. Uh, Nevertheless, Gnosticism itself was, um, you know, was quite, was quite important. Rob? Where did the Gnostics uh, fall within persecution? Were they considered Christians as far as being persecuted? Um, That's a, it's a, it's a really good question that, I mean, in in some ways, by the time we get to the middle of uh, the third century, you know, it's not as quite as strong a movement as it had been, you know, a hundred years before, let's say in, in Marcion's time. Um, but as best as we can tell, it, it is very likely that the Gnostics were, you know, to, to some degree, it's hard to say how, how widespread, but were in in some ways caught up that while they were, um, you know, I, I mean, we're talking about how they were different. Um, you know, from the perspective of the Roman empire, they were followers of Jesus Christ, which made them Christians. I mean, that's how they presented themselves as well. And they would not have, um, and they rejected the pagan, you know, gods as real, you know, they they said, no, we're not going to do that. And so, you know, while they saw themselves as separate from the early Christian communities, they also didn't go along with this sort of god of the state, pagan gods though. Um, to the extent that they existed in the middle of the third and end of the third century uh, it seems seems very likely that they were caught up in it. Yeah. doctor i'm wondering if there's any correlation you know, historically between the concept of grace and this elite knowledge this special knowledge you mean what were they sort of anticipating grace or I don't know how we look at grace almost as a gift right so it is a gift so i'm wondering whether the gnostics since they were very it sounds from what you said is it was very difficult for them to put into words this experience <clears throat> sounds like an encounter or grace right from our perspective i'm just wondering if anybody's ever really you know made a parallel or am i out of my mind there well i uh, i wouldn't say no it's, it's not an unreasonable Sort of connection to make. I'm. I don't. I mean, I can't think of anyone who's really sort of taken this this line. What I would say, uh, one difference, if you will, between the Gnostics and. I mean, if we're talking about grace in the early church, we're. You know, we're talking about Augustine, and. You know, the difference was that this special knowledge was selective. Was like hard to come by, um, whereas you know the. Augustine's notion of grace is, is, is quite the opposite. You know, it's gratuitous. It's, it's to, even to, you know, wretched sinners like, like me, it's available. Um, and so, I I mean, I follow the, the, you know, what you're thinking, if you will, that, that something about the, um, unearned aspect of it, that it was just this knowledge that somehow was communicated in a special way to people. Um, I, I could see some some connections there. Again, I don't think the Gnostics were, you know, like anticipating the the doctrine on grace that would be formulated. But but you're right to identify a kind of connection there. Didn't Augustine kind of almost go through this Gnosticism before he finally reached Christianity? Well, he did, right? He went through a little bit of just about everything, <laughs> um, and so he would have been exposed to this. Um, you know, I was. That's the first thing I thought of actually, and and I don't know that you know there's not a really well defined specifically Gnostic period. Um, You know, he was uh, you know this kind of dualism though. It's going to also be echoed um, um, in the struggle. Just to jump ahead a little bit with with the Manichaeans, if if that's if that rings a bell, they were also very dualist, and, and Augustine sort of pre-conversion experience in some of these other uh religious currents really convinced him of the need to you know argue against this conception that the world isn't evil and part of the reason that it wasn't evil is because of is, is actually precisely because of grace which redeems creation um and so i i it would be interesting to see if there's more there Yes. Uh Professor? Yes. Um I don't know if this makes any sense. But um uh, when I was doing my Christology paper, I did on the jesus this is it, uh the priestly prayer um in John's last uh last supper discourse. And the last line, uh one of the commentators said that proves kind of like Gnosticism or knowledge is not the goal of Christ's prayer to the Father, but that love is. Hmm. In other words he through knowledge he let them know his name father but that the point of it was that they may be united in love so where Gnosticism, knowledge is the goal that gets you there for us it's like uh, love is a shortcut kind of to that truth in the way that... thanks no that's great i mean i think that's yeah i think that's that that's right and, and that's important I, I would say you know if i were a gnostic um, you know, looking at that, that text, I just would have been like, you know, easy solution. That that's just I'm just going to cut that out. You know, I just like highlight that and delete it, um, which is you know kind of how they treated the, the gospels, the, the New Testament text. It, you know, even some of Paul's stuff that they didn't they didn't think was sort of reflective of this approach. They just they just didn't accept it. They didn't take it. And so yeah, I think you're right. Looking back on it now, in the in the context of the canon of scripture that's defined, and, and you know, the early church. Um, part of what you see is that, you know, some of these other movements, and Montanism is another one. We'll talk about it in one sec. You know, where, uh, you know, they were they were sort of seizing on some aspect that might have, you know, had a, elements of truth within it, but then extending it far too far too much. I mean, this is a sort of uh, you know, I wasn't quite ready to, you know, make this point today, but it, it's just as well because we're going to be talking about, you know, Arianism and all of that before too long. It's often the case that, you know, Christian her- heresies, you know, begin as as sort of ideas or movements that reflect a kind of insight or, or point of emphasis that has some degree of truth to it. Um, and then it just becomes extended or extrapolated or emphasized like beyond um, beyond you know the boundary of, of sort of authenticity or, or faithfulness to you know jesus's the, the, the entirety of jesus's teachings especially those that were expressed you know through the gospels and and the apostle um but many of these movements you know from the beginning of the church's life that 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 kind of Result in breaking away have some component of um, of truth to them. I mean, the Gnostics were right in the sense to say um, that Christianity isn't meant to be legalism. I mean, Pope Francis says that all the time, <laughs> um, you know, and, and there's something to that. Um, but does that mean that any reference to like the law or any reference to the Old Testament ought to be, you know, just deleted or ignored? Well, no, clearly no. But you can see how, you know, there there was some insight. I mean, Martin Luther was on to something. Like, yeah, the popes shouldn't be abusing their authority and 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 you know, spending money extravagantly and and entertaining you know all sorts of immoralities in the Vatican Palace. Like that was true. Um, But you know, do you? And similarly, like you you should focus on faith and not simply, um, you know, works as expressed in like. The, uh, the execution of one's Christian responsibilities and receiving the sacraments, but then you can take it too far, right? And so um, this is a broader point, right? but I would I would sort of count the Gnostics in there, and then sort of bring it back, Alex, to your point. You have to take the whole picture, and and when you do that, you see like, okay, yeah, they're they're not talking about, you know, the the entirety of the Christian revelation isn't just special mystical knowledge, the one bit beyond that. Alright, excellent. Let's um move on to, to Montanism. Um, Montanism is is um worth worthwhile in that it's the first it's the first sort of movement or, or challenge, if you will, to Christianity that has a a distinctly and sort of specifically Christian origin. So, whereas I said Gnosticism in a way kind of is broader than just the sort of Christian Gnosticism, there's Jewish Gnosticism, there's pagan Gnosticism. Um, Montanism specifically springs forth from the early church. And in some ways, you know, it's the first of several movements that will recur. Um, throughout church history, in terms of its emphasis on um, on the end, the end of the world, as well as uh, its emphasis on the spirit, and so, Montanism, um, you know, in, in part is is responding to um, a problem, if you will, that that was taking hold in the early christian uh, in the early church which is that most of the, the you know the christians in the apostolic age certainly and even in the in the immediate post apostolic age let's say the first generation after the apostles really believed that that the end of the world was coming soon you know that the second coming would be bef- would be before you know not too long um, and that, uh, you know, that that would be, you know, something to be waiting for and and to be prepared for. Certainly, Jesus, you know, talks about it, um, and and they kind of expected that this is, you know, something that they would be they would be witnesses to, that they would be part of. But as we get into the, you know, we're talking about the middle of the second century, like you know, one one fifties or thereabouts. So now we're, you know, what is that five? Six, six or seven generations, something like that. You know, however you want to count generations beyond, you know, the apostolic age. Um, you know, there was, there were, you know, there was an increasing sense that, you know, maybe this sort of the second coming isn't right around the corner. Maybe this sort of age of the spirit is is going to take a little bit longer to arrive um, than we thought. Um, however with montanism we see a kind of emphasis on you know a particular belief that the spirit was was actually you know getting ready to you know break through again through um through this particular movement within um the christian church and so um Montan- montanist sorry um I gave you the name on the outline, but just in case you don't have it in front of you. Montanus is the guy that it's named after, Um, who sort of was the one who who spearheaded this movement, if you will. Um, You know, he declares himself a sort of passive instrument of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now speaking through Montanus. And what the Spirit is saying is that, you know, there's sort of this, you know, Fresh outburst, if you will, of of prophecy, of prophetic revelation. Um, you know, the same spirit that had, from their perspective, the same spirit that had illuminated the Old Testament prophets and and sort of the as well as the you know the apostles in the apostolic age, um, was now was now uh, sort of illuminating Montanus and his some others around him that they were sort of passive mouthpieces for the Holy Spirit. And one of the key things that that the Holy Spirit was saying through Montanus was that, get ready, um, that that the end of the world is at hand or close at hand. So he says, um, you know, the end of the world is, is close at hand. This, the promise of Christ has been fulfilled through this dispensation. The age of the spirit is um, about to begin. He has with him uh, two prophetesses, like two female prophets. Prophetesses is surprisingly hard to say, uh, at least for me. Um, and so these, uh, between Montanus and the two women you know, they go they go around sort of boarding people to get ready for the end of the world. Um, what they what they preached, if you will, I mean a, a good portion of what they preached was, um, you know, not particularly a, a, a bad thing or problematic uh, in that they called people to, you know, to prepare. And how do you prepare? You redouble your efforts to sort of. Um, you know, be in the world, but not of the world, you know, as, as you, as, as the Christians would have heard. So renounce your attachment to possession, the worldly things, so renounce your attachment to food. You know, you should be fasting, you should be living a very simple kind of, uh, ascetical lifestyle and, um, you know, practice, uh, pra- renounce your attachment to sex and practice celibacy. Um, all of these things—abstaining from, you know, food, from meat, from drink, whatever—were ways to kind of prepare oneself, and that was a, a big part of what they were, um, what they were uh, saying in terms of the concrete message. The problem, if you will, was the authority upon which they were, you know, claiming to give that message, right? Which was that the Holy Spirit was speaking to, directly through them. Um, which automatically, and again, this is not the only movement in the history of the church that's going to claim to be sort of uh, representing the voice of the Spirit. Um, there, are, there are going to be several others, and each time, you know, you get this obvious question, which is, like, if the Holy Spirit is speaking through Montanus or, or pick whoever you, you know, you want that's claiming this. If you really believe that, like, why would you even bother listening to anyone else, like, let's say your bishop or the pope or whatever? Because, like, the the Holy Spirit, last I checked, you know, outranks, out you know, Cardinal Dolan. No offense, your Eminence. Um, you know, and, and so this is often the 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 difficulty uh, around authority that arises with these kinds of movements that are that are focused or. That are proceeding in the name of the Spirit, which is why, why do we, why do you need the church if you've got, you know, if you're getting the message, you know, you've got a direct line from God, you know, why why do you need? Um, and so, Montanus and his his followers quickly sort of find themselves entering into conflicts with, um, you know, some local bishops and, and others who then hold synods and condemn. Mountainous. This is mostly in Asia Minor, again, sort of modern day Turkey. Um, and in response, like, look, if you if you think you're a passive mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, I, I mean, is a synod condemning you in in Asia Minor likely to shut you up? I mean, no. I mean, why, why would you? If, if you really, you know, if if that's your claim and that's your belief, the Holy Spirit speaking through you, like no human voice could could tell you anything. And so um, this movement, obviously, is not meant for um, sort of continued unity with the Christian community, and and it splits away. Again, what's fascinating about it, well, up to this point, what's fascinating um, about sort of this first generation, if you will, of of Montanists, is that there's a a part of their message that was, that was not just compelling, but like um, was a a recapturing of the original message of, you know, sort of uh, not becoming too attached to the world. And, and it's not, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, the Christians by 150 were all living in luxury and, you know, had become, totally worldly as we just got done saying you know they lived a very difficult existence um, vis-a-vis you know political problems and persecution but but there was still you know the zeal tends to like go down a notch in every generation it seems um you know in, in sort of the early church you had the apostolic age and then you know as you got further and further away it seemed to be Um, declining a little bit, and and the Montanists seem to be interested in trying to, you know, reignite some of that spark and what they were calling for. Now, a a major reason, honestly, that Montanism sort of lasts for, you know, a decent while and also is sort of important historically is a little bit less um, related to Montanists himself. And a little bit more related to um, the fact that it attracted one of the preeminent thinkers and sort of theologians in the Christian church and, and all of, you know, church history, which is to say, um, uh, you know, when Tertullian, when the, the theologian Tertullian becomes a Montanist, he immediately... Um, You know, lens and and his stature in the Christian world sort of lend a certain amount of, I don't know, gravitas, if you will, to to Montanism. Um, So we should talk about Tertullian. Uh, Well, Tertullian um, was—I gave you his dates, something like 160 to 225. Um, He was born in North Africa in, in Carthage um you know his his parents were pagan but eventually he converts to christianity his conversion to montanism seems to have happened in like the early 200s we don't have a hard and fast date. um and interestingly it seemed it seems likely that his conversion was motivated by a kind of um Like that he was, it was appealing to him that the moral message, like the message of asceticism and living a simple life of renunciation, um, you know, he he experienced at least in in you know where where he had been a kind of lukewarmness within the Christian community, and so he sees um, he sees the Montanists as you know on fire with with the spirit in a way that he didn't experience. And I mean, I say that because sometimes I think it's easy for us to look at these movements that, you know, we have the sort of benefit of saying, well, you know, that clearly wasn't, you know, a movement that stayed in communion with the church or it was a heresy or whatever. And you you think, well, I would never, you know, not me. I would never become a heretic or join a breakaway movement. Um, And so it's worth asking, you know, what attracts people to these movements? And especially when when you attract the guy known as the father of latin theology to your movement it's really worth asking what attracted him what attracted tertullian to montanism i mean he wasn't some ignoramus he's one of the most important thinkers in christian history um and it does seem like you know he had this every every experience is personal right and we can't you know, know it in you know in its entirety, but he did seem to reflect in some of his writings a, a sort of disappointment with you know a perceived lukewarmness within the the Christian community that that he found to be not the case um, among the followers of uh, Montanus. Eventually, by the end, it's it's fascinating because by the end of Tertullian's life, he will he will really have a kind of strained relationship with (coughs) excuse me, with Montanism. Um, There there are even some scholars who argue that like, Tertullian didn't really die a Montanist, that he had kind of rejected some of the sort of you know, the most uh, extreme claims about the authority of those that were designated as prophets. Um, You know, I what I, I don't really know that that's, we're not going to sort of resolve that issue here. He certainly under, underwent a period, you know, for many years in the later part of his life where he was committed to to the Montanist. You know, whether he sufficiently uh, sort of distanced himself from the from those beliefs before he died, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's very hard to say. Um, nevertheless, Tertullian sort of wielded, um, you know, a, a unbelievable influence in this sort of development of Latin theology in, in the early church. You know, and I'll say more about Tertullian in another context. It's where we get lots of good um, sort of Latin words that come to define Christianity, like Trinitas and, uh, you know, tr- Trinity and, and lots of a, sort of the terminology around Eucharistic theology. Um, come from Tertullian. Um, he wrote some of the most important early works on prayer and baptism. He, he writes uh, this famous um, dialogue, it's like this conversation with a, a Jew. Um, the Jew's name is Trifo, a dialogue with Trifo, the Jew, where he kind of takes on some of the criticisms of Christianity you know, from a Jewish perspective and answers them. He was seen as this sort of great apologetic work, um, apologetic work of of Christianity. And I mean, you know, what's so fascinating is that specific work, this dialogue with Trifo, which was, you know, sort of came forth sometime in the early 200s, was cited in... um, Well, now I'm not sure which encyclical, but one of the encyclicals of Benedict XVI is that it's actually in there. And it was it's always striking to me and sort of thinking about the, you know, this is kind of not a specifically like uh, related to our our topic comment. But it's more like, you know, in thinking about the what's so fascinating and important about church history, you know, living in, in the 21st century or whatever and experiencing the development of the church as it moves through time. Yet we still encounter documents that are citing, you know, um, Tertullian's work from whatever 1800 years before, um, and, and so I think that that says something about sort of continuity of this tradition. It also says something that's 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 an issue that, that gets wrestled with at various points in in the church's history, which is how do you how do you treat um, Works that are written by a person who, at some point in their life, let's say, winds up becoming separated from the church, let's say, from the sort of the official institutional church, and you know, to the extent that that later generations were um, were aware of Tertullian's involvement with the Montanists, there were some who thought we that you know we have to reject everything he wrote. Um, but the prevailing view will, will come to be that, you know, the teachings kind of stand or fall on their own merit, and and even an individual who you know, may have experienced a period of time where they were involved with another, you know, group, or in this case, you know, the Montanus, um, if what they wrote is, you know, expressing some truth in accordance with, you um, you know, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, well then, you know, that, that can be of benefit to to the Christians. And certainly that's the case with Tertullian, who's who's very much held in, in esteem for his works, even though you know he he, he was a, a Montanist for a good portion of his sort of adult life. And what's so interesting about it, just to take this even to push this point even a little bit harder, many of his most influential and most cited works in sort of future generations were written precisely in that period when he, he was most clearly a Montanist. Um, and so you you have, you know, and, and it's not like you know he's saying controversial or edgy things about the Holy Spirit in, in these works that have become important. Like I say, a lot of them are about baptism or prayer, or, you know, other sort of his explanation of other. Or, Uh, theological concepts in Latin would go on to be very influential Um, and yet uh, many of them were authored in a time where he himself was in a kind of um, you know disconnected relationship with in in terms of or disconnected communion let's say you know with the with the teachings of uh, let's say the Pope and and the bishops of, of the church at the time so um yeah i think it's it's a I, le, I think it's a fascinating kind of example of the messiness of this whole thing um, but also the way in which you know these contributions can come from sources that that have complicated uh, backgrounds in, in some way so um, again just to maybe say it again if i wasn't clear at, at the outset i mean part of the reason that Montanism... Retained sort of some influence or whatever is just because Tertullian was such an, an influential figure over a generation that his own commitments seemed worthy of, you know, meriting attention by future generations. And they thought, well, if this guy was a Montanus, maybe we ought to at least, you know, understand what they were about. Um, however, as a movement, if you will, um, it seems, it seems likely that by the end of the 300s, you know, when you get sort of to the point where the, the barbarian tribes are converting and everything, um, you know, you really just have Arianism and, and then Orthodox Christianity and, and Montanism, it kind of faded away. Um, but as a historical matter, Tertullian's involvement kind of kept it uh, a little bit more a a little bit higher awareness okay Okay. any questions about Gnosticism or Montanism or Cetullian I guess I would ask was he ever excommunicated no no and I mean the the thing you have to um, remember here is You know, we're talking about a time when um, the sort of the mechanisms of the institutional church were, like, really in their kind of primitive stages, if you will. Um, And so, you know, you did have this tradition of, like, local synods or whatever, where you could have... um, you know, condemnations or whatever. But there wasn't so much, you know, a really thoroughly built, I don't know, infrastructure is the word that I I keep thinking of to to kind of deal with some of these problems. Um, And so, you know, Tertullian and and others in the Montanist sort of movement um, were, you know, may have faced uh, you know synods where where there was a condemnation, but it wouldn't have been necessarily like a formal excommunication. It would have been more like you know this this belief is wrong. This doesn't represent the the the, the belief of you know the Christian Church from the time of the apostles or whatever. Um, and so there there is no there is no um, you know decree or, or something like that you know, excommunicating Tertology. It just it's looking back, it's seen as, you know, a, a, a viewpoint or a, a movement that was that was at odds with sort of the Orthodox understanding of Christianity. Um Dr. Kushani um, wasn't dialogue with Trifo, wasn't that Saint Justin Martyr? Oh yeah. What? I'm thinking, I'm sorry. You're right. That elegant trifle was Justin Martyr. I'm thinking of another text by Tertullian. Thank you. It's funny that sorry. To <laughs> lie again. Yeah. Um, what was Benedict's? Does anyone remember his first encyclical by any chance? Like he wrote them on the theological virtues, right? God is love was one. I, I don't know, but it, it, there is a citation from Tertullian in one of them. Um, Anyway, you're right. Thank you. Uh, I don't know why I, I confused that. It is, it is Justin Martyr. I guess about the same time, though, right? Same yeah, time. that's right. So Justin Martyr was, um, yeah, the second half of the, he was writing a number of his works, like, in the middle of the second century. In fact, um, The dialogue with Trifo was probably in the 160s. So yeah, he was a contemporary of Tertullian. Thanks, good catch, sorry about that. So, I'm I'm not gonna get through this, right? But just to start uh, start, um, looking at the response of, christian community to these challenges both the political challenges but then most especially you know what we're going to look at um because the christians didn't really have any political power is sort of the response to these various religious challenges and there's this group that arises that we've, we've come to refer to as the apologists again apologists here is like apologetics it's it's in the sense of being a defense of or an explanation of something, um, you know, not in the apologizing sense. Um, the uh, apology, you know, sort of the first one of these that I want to look at is Clement the First, or Clement, sorry, Clement of Rome. I put on the outline, but really we're talking about Clement the First, Pope Clement the First, who died probably in the year 99. was probably the Pope, you know, the Bishop of Rome from roughly 92 to 99. Again, there's, uh, you know, some speculation that some part of the tradition that holds the Clement was consecrated by St. Peter um, himself, but, uh, you know, the, the, the point is simply that he was, you know, a very early leader of the church in Rome. You, know, if you if you think about the um, you know the long form of the Eucharistic prayer, or whatever the Roman Canon, you know it goes Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixth Cornelius, Cyprian, Fabius, blah, blah blah, and all of that. That's the Clement we're talking about, like the third uh, the third successor of, of Peter. Um, in other words, you know, Pope number four. Um, so he was, he was, um, the, the fourth Pope and, you know, was again, early, but by virtue of that position, by being the Bishop of Rome, was sort of, um, involved in, you know, responding to letters that were sent to, um, to him to resolve disputes. one, uh, we, we've lost presumably a number of these Letters one that we do have is um, a letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, um, which is sometimes known in the tradition as First Clement, you know, just like First Peter or something like that. Um, and in in First Clement, he sort of asserts the authority of um, he asserts the authority of clergy of priests as having um, as having you know sort of the authority handed down from the apostles to govern and kind of make decisions within the church there was a dispute about um, you know a matter in the Corinthian church and, and he kind of upheld the authority of the presbyters or the priest there to you know kind of make decisions. decision um, again this was seen as, as kind of Laying the foundation for, you know, the development of the teaching on apostolic authority and the importance of it. Uh, it's also this letter, that First Clement is, is, you know, maybe the the oldest um, existing Christian document, you know, post New Testament. Um, and so, in in that way, it's it's very very important. Um, finally, I mean, just to Bring circle the circle to the first part of our, our class today. Um, he was, uh, according to tradition, uh, imprisoned under the Emperor Trajan, and it's uh, it's said that he led sort of a ministry among among the prisoners, but was executed. You may you probably know, uh, was executed by being. Tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. The bishops of Rome, um, you know, were often early targets. I, I mentioned Fabian and in 250 and, BC, and the Decian persecution. But you know, a number of the, the first popes, you know, faced um, various forms of Harassment leading up to and including, obviously, martyrdom. You know, the Rome, the Roman Empire was headquartered there. and The extent that Christianity was, you know, at times a movement scheme with suspicion or in opposition. The leader of the Christians clearly was the bishop. And that that meant uh, that the bishop of Rome was often targeted. Any questions about Clement? Um, I don't want to keep going because last time I went over by too long, I felt bad. So, uh, any any last questions about anything for today? Besides the obvious one, which is, will we ever get to the second outline? Um, and the answer is, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> no, we'll, well, don't worry. The, the, the pace picks up considerably. Uh, okay. It's like the... And well, thanks very much everyone. Um have a good week and see you next Monday. Thank you, David. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Bye, thank you. Good night, good night. thank you. No, have a good night. Have a good night.